Hi, I'm Helen and this is Why Mums Don't Jump. Busting taboos about leaks and lumps after childbirth. All the stuff that happens to your pelvic floor that no one ever talks about. Incontinence, prolapse, pelvic pain. Problems that affect millions of women. One in three. I'm one of them. I have a prolapse. My pelvic organs fell out of place after the birth of my second child five years ago. And if you'd told me then I'd be speaking about this stuff out loud, I would have told you to give your head a wobble. Hi, welcome to episode five. Thank you for listening. I've had so many lovely messages in the past few weeks and it just hugely underlines the power of sharing stories to feel connected, to feel you're not alone, to know that so many other women around the world can relate. I keep thinking it'd be really great to know exactly how many women are muddling through life wearing pads to keep them dry or plastic donuts to hold things in place. I don't think there's a definitive answer to that question. I still, I think there's still a lot of research to do and I think pelvic floor problems are underreported for all the reasons we already know about. So one in three is the figure I've been using, which is women over 25 with symptoms of prolapse or incontinence. You can find a link to that research on my website. In this episode, you're going to hear us talk about half of women having prolapse. That's for women over the age of 50. It's a figure used by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists here in the UK. So it's just another illustration really of how widespread these issues are, how crazy it is that they're so hidden and how more research, more facts and figures would be great around this stuff. So this episode, I mentioned that I went to London to record with some fabulous professionals and women who were prepared to share their stories. And Luce Brett is one of them. She's an author who's written a book about her experience of becoming incontinent after the birth of her first son. She's passionate about ending the stigma. In fact, the first time I rang her up, she told me she was quite happy to be the poster girl for incontinence. And I thought, yes, this is someone we need to hear from. Then she let me turn up on her doorstep late one evening when she'd just finished work and the house was being renovated and she'd had no dinner. She's one of the good ones. Take me back. I mean, I know we're talking more than a decade ago yeah. now, but can you can you even remember when you first realised that you had this problem? Well... I mean, when I very first had my son, within hours and sort of days of it, I was a bit leaky, but I think you're kind of prepared for that. I had the hospital bag with pads in, and I knew that there would be some potential collateral damage um, with any kind of delivery, really. And I'd had a vaginal delivery and a tear and stitches, and I'd also had some hemorrhages afterwards, so it had been quite uh, physical, if you like. Um, and I felt that I was leaking quite a bit. But it was a funny thing because I was so upset about all the other stuff. The midwives on the home team were really friendly and kind, but they were sort of like, it's all right, like it'll improve, don't panic. You know, you're breastfeeding, there's hormones, you know, give it a couple of months, see how it's going sort of thing. And um, so fine. And I carried on and um, I knew all the stories, you know, like people sneezing or going on a trampoline or dancing or whatever and wetting themselves. So I so I had those things in my head um, and I realised that I was, well, I couldn't tell if it was normal or not. But for me, it wasn't like I sneezed and I wet myself. It was like climbing up the stairs would make me wet myself or 
pushing my pram up a curb or whatever. So I thought it felt like my tolerance was pretty low for sort of keeping we in. But again, you know, sort of plodding on a bit. And then um, I also noticed that if I got really emotional, sometimes I wet myself, which again, hadn't happened to me before. I had a baby and that seemed a bit odd. And I was very emotional because I'd just had a baby in this quite sort of nasty aftermath to my birth. So I was quite sort of stressed and upset and miserable. And everyone kept being sort of so sweet about how horrid it had all been. But it was sort of simultaneously really lovely, but also almost dreamlike because I felt like people kept giving me advice that was for somebody else. And because we don't talk about it in this sort of completely open way, you never say... um, like people say, oh, I sneezed and I went myself, well, guess what happened? Or I had to wash my jeans. And they don't, and you've got no one to ask necessarily, unless you've got a really great relationship with your mum and your friends. And I, I love my friends and I love my mum and I love my sisters, but we don't necessarily always talk about stuff like that. And we certainly maybe didn't then. Um, but you don't get to say like, but well, what do you mean? Do you mean like a teaspoonful or do you no. mean like full voiding? Or And so all this stuff was sort of bubbling around. And then I had my six week check, but because I'd had these, grisly hemorrhages which were really horrid afterwards my son was like totally fine he was signed off within like minutes of popping out all like pink and furious and and I was like this sort of haggard wreck so we had to go to the hospital to the consultants um for it and um it was weird like she she even like examined me and everything and it was just there's this sort of genuine moment and I can't really describe what changed but I was sitting opposite her and she was sort of like you know, you've had a pretty tough time. I'm not surprised you're upset. I was a bit tearful and she was sort of saying, you know, let's keep an eye on that. And she just said, okay, is there anything else? And I just suddenly thought like, do you know what? And I said, I'm a bit worried about leaking. And she started and it was, and everything she said was like totally evidence-based. And she was a wonderful consultant, actually. The rest of the story will bear that out. She sort of started talking and I was like, no, no, not this, not sneezing, not something that's just sometimes this is all the time I don't know I can't tell where I begin and where my pads end I I I don't think anyone in my NCT group is using this many pads or at least when they're making jokes they're not making jokes that make it sound like my experience even the sort of risque jokes women make about it aren't marrying with what I'm I'm what's happening to me and it feels all completely out of place and it's all wrong and you know perhaps I'm a terrible feminist I, you know I don't even know what it should look like in the first place if I'm completely honest and I certainly don't understand what it looks like now and and I haven't really dared look that closely because you know stitches and disgusting and so I sort of say like no I don't, I don't think that's right and I was like everything everything makes me wee just everything and she's like <sighs> she's like, can you get up on come on just get up on back onto the thing and we and and so I and she, she did sigh, but I mean, like, you know, I can't blame her. So I, I took all my clothes off again, or like the bottom half, and then she started looking again, and she started focusing more on my, what I realised now was a pelvic floor examination, but I'd never had one before. Mm-hmm. She was ever so gentle and kind, of course, you know, even six weeks later, you can still be quite bruised and swollen, and, and it's all just such a, I mean, it's just such a mess in your pants, you don't really want to, um, but anyway, she went through, and then she was like, actually, when she'd finished, she was like, you do have a prolapse, um, I'm really sorry, you know, that that's happened. And I didn't know, is that good or bad? I mean, I knew it probably wasn't good, but I mean, like, 
what's a good prolapse, what's a bad prolapse, does it matter? I'd, I'd never even heard of it. I didn't even know and what like, one was. And yeah, it'll happen to like almost half of women and, and no one talks about it really. Or if they do, they sort of did it and that sort of, it makes me think of, um, it's funny with the microphone to do it, but like that sort of Les Dawson sort of like ooh, pulling pulling a funny face like an old woman sort of reference of it. And and this is a real thing that happens to lots of women. It happens to younger women as well. And there are women with a propensity. So there'll be women who are super fit, super slim uh, and everything who've ended up with prolapses even before they've had kids or certainly afterwards and those sorts of things. So, but I didn't know all that then. I was just lying with my like wet leggings around my ankles thinking like, I've got to get my baby to, I'm supposed to be meeting a friend to go to baby cinema because I'm going insane <laughs> already. And I think I should do loads of things. And I feel like I've missed out on everything by being in and out of hospital for weeks. And I want it to be nice. And I'm supposed to be meeting meet my parents and all these things were going on. And I really wasn't listening to half of what she said anyway. So she may well have explained it much better than I'm giving her credit for. But you've got all these other things going on, haven't you, once you nick a sedan? Like you, you're not just focusing on them saying prolapse. You're thinking of every other time you've had bad news or trying to work out whether it's good news or bad news. And she's like, you need physiotherapy. I had a year of physio and then I had another baby. I was very lucky, had another baby, had a very similar um, physiological experience, a similar tear. So it was second degree, but still did quite a lot of damage. But they didn't really go, well, it's all going to be fine. This time they were a bit like, okay, we need to get you into physio really straight away. And so I went to physio and that was amazing. And it was for quite a long time, but I managed to, you know, I worked really hard at things. I was pretty dry. I, if I drank too much booze, I'd wet myself. Um, I also had to do bladder retraining because of the crying and wet myself, which is a different what, source. What's of that? Um, so there's lots of different techniques you do, but it's a way of coping with um, another type of incontinence. So there's stress incontinence when you jump at, and it's like a physical stress on your bladder, neck. I hope I'm getting this right. And then there's urge incontinence, which is um, a physiological process, but it's also got um, an emotional element to it. So um, for that, I had to keep a bladder diary, which is okay, I guess, in certain circumstances, quite stressful for me because I was like back at work when I was doing my bladder diary. So I'd have to, I mean, how do you do that in an office environment? I mean, I did it by working out how much a, I can't believe I'm admitting this, how much we would fill a like prep cup <laughs> oh, and then rinsing it and but keeping that because you can put that in like your cardigan pocket or whatever. And then I would wee into that and work out where it was in the prep cup so I could keep my bladder diary. Because obviously if you were at home, you might be able to, we into like a plastic measuring jug or something, yeah. but I couldn't. And you have to measure everything in and everything out. So <laughs> like the easiest way would be to use the same receptacle, but obviously you're not going to use the oh same receptacle. Oh my goodness. So I'd have to have like two Preka <laughs> <laughs> or two Starbucks ones. But yes, yeah, so they basically, I mean, I got so like, it's like a gone mastermind for like 331 mils in this mug in my house. Wow. Like that's how, but like, yeah, that's so I had to keep a diary of how much goes in, how much comes out, when you're leaking, when you're not. And um, then you start to, to spot patterns. And okay. sometimes with bladder retraining, you have to work really hard at avoiding um, behaviours that don't help with that. So, for example, I had to learn not to run to the loo. You've got to say, I'm just going to walk to the toilet. Okay. I'm going to train my bladder that we are going to walk. Okay. We are going to wait. We're going to take a deep breath. We're going to get all these clothes off. I mean, obviously what happens for loads of that at the start is... I mean, this is a sort of like incontinence 
top uh, secret information, for example, that if you're someone who that sort of thing happens to, it's not actually getting there and wearing your trousers, which is dreadful. That's the worst thing. The absolute bloody worst is you get in, you get clothes half down and then you wet yourself because then it's everything. There's no escape. Like if you've got black leggings on and black shoes, you could just about get away with like running out of the office to pre-mark. But if once you've like weed all over your knickers in the floor, you're just, you know, and that's the sort of thing that's so gross and really hard to sort of find a way to talk about it. So I don't know how many women with urge incontinence there are who are my sort of age, but I tell you what, I couldn't find any and it was so lonely. It was so lonely and I used to have to carry a spare pack of clothes in my handbag and I had this male GP once and he was like, what, everywhere? And it's like, yeah, every, yeah, everywhere. And he was just like, really? And it's like, well, what did you think I'd do? It's it's sort of like a secret code, I guess. But And I had to learn that all for myself. And heaven knows I probably made a mess of it. But that's the sort of thing that you have to do with bladder retraining. And that's what sort of thing you have to do when you've got continence issues. And there's no one to talk to about it who can really say, oh, God, don't worry about it. Just throw them away. Throw those jeans away. If you're not sure you've got the smell out the first time, just throw them away. Like you need that. You need like a big incontinent sister to come and tell you that it's okay to it's okay to cry about it or it's okay. and I've, I felt like I didn't have that so but that's yeah so bladder retraining as well with after my first one and then I had a lot of physio after my second one and some of that helped we got up to a certain level with the scores but we couldn't get over it and I was still leaking quite a lot and she organized for um my case to be reviewed by what's called a multidisciplinary team and for them to discuss whether I should have surgery or not um and you and you went ahead with that, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, we had to do quite a lot of tests first to check I was the right sort of candidate. And um, it's quite a complicated landscape because when I was going through it, the gold standard operation that most women were having was the mesh mm-hmm. operation, a TPT, or it's got various names, there's various sorts, but one where you insert a mesh and use it. Um, Which we now know is has been very controversial yeah and so the, and 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 even back then there were some stories about it but it was still very much the gold standard but they felt that the a more invasive and a kind of aggressive operation which is based on a much older one would be more appropriate for me so I had what's called a birch carpo suspension which was quite hardcore and it was quite a difficult recovery like I ended up in and out of 24 hour GPs and all that sort of stuff so it was quite a culture shock to like walk into a hospital sort of fine but wet myself a bit and so to leave like a limp invalid but then when I recovered from it it had worked quite well not perfectly but quite well so I still leaked a bit but it had helped and I wasn't um my my lovely lovely surgeon who did the operation um had described my incontinence as florid and like and he said it was like off the scale in one of his letters or I think and he he was very very kind to me because he was um he was incredulous that I was putting up with this shit he was like what do you mean you've been in physio for like two what and it was like why haven't you come before asking for surgery asking for it to stop and I was like I don't know because I'm still not convinced that I'm not making a fuss about something that everybody else is going through. And maybe mm-hmm. I am, you know, maybe that's the awful truth is actually mine's the m- most minor incontinent story and everybody else is feeling they can't talk about it. And, and you know, 
I, I really hope that, that, that that's not the case because I just worry that there must be women going through dreadful stuff. A friend of mine asked me the other day, like, why people find this so hard to talk about? And all I could really sort of say was it's, it's just so embarrassing. And she was, yeah. like, and she was like, what's embarrassing about it? Because children don't have a problem with talking about weeing and pooing and bits. So, so at what point does that just become so distressing and stigmatized well i think that so i think there's lots of things going on i think culturally it's not it's not quite the same in some places but i think it's because it happens to women um incontinence happens mostly to women um it happens to women who are older um and traditionally there have been other taboos around older women whether you're looking at like witches or old women being sort of become like embarrassments or mad people in the corner i think it's because those old women aren't always cared for so that that um, being incontinent is one thing but smelling is another and I think that can be quite tricky um, I, I, I also think we've still got loads of stigma about women's genitals and um, like everybody can draw a penis and I know loads of people who couldn't tell me what a labia was on a rudimentary drawing I don't know many people who could draw a clitoris and I think that we're told that women's body parts should, shouldn't smell, they shouldn't have hair, they should have no odour. Well, that's not true, is it? Like, we want it to be sanitised because mm-hmm. we don't want to talk about it and we don't want to look at it and it's all disgusting. And when women do talk about the bits, it's like, oh, my God, what's going on and on? And I and I think, so I think incontinence is really tied up with that. But also, you know, I my other theory is I think people don't like incontinence because it reminds them of the worst things. It reminds them of ageing. It reminds them of decay. It reminds them that all bodies break and can be fallible. It reminds them that they are as likely to be struck by an embarrassment thing as anybody else. And I really feel it's like that. And there is a way to break the spell because I've thought about this a lot over the last few years and especially when I've been writing about incontinence. And one thing I've been really keen to explore is how you flip it and there are ways of flipping that taboo and they are about naming it and you name it and it loses some of its power and then you find out about it so what we were saying earlier you know you find out about physio which bit of goes with which bit why do those muscles work what does a pelvic floor muscle look like pretty disgusting actually when you actually get a model and really look at it but also how clever a hammock Mm. of muscles to hold everything up brilliant and then you can uncover it and cover it and cover it because there are surveys that would suggest that um, women who are incontinent are much more likely to get postnatal depression and much more likely serious depression is linked with incontinence. There are parts in the world where it's so shameful that it's seen as a curse or religious curse, you know, curse from God or whatever. And actually, what is it? It's a mechanical fault that can usually be fixed. And even if it can't be cured, mine couldn't be cured but it could be helped and it could be changed and it didn't own me anymore. And I think that those are there and, and the taboo can do it, but it's about sort of chipping away at it. And if we could even start talking about it a bit, then stigma can't bear it if you name it. So I'm imagining someone who's maybe listening to this and has very recently had a baby and found themselves in this position. What would you say to them as someone who's, really gone through the mill with it all but is in a better place now also you're not alone and that is quite useful to know um there's loads of help out there and that help is really various as well there and often completely low risk you know there are pelvic floor exercises there are websites that can tell you your gp may well be able to help your practice nurse may be able to help 
um, your local physio may be able to help. You might even find that you've got a gym instructor or a Pilates person or someone who can help. You could even go online and look at them, have a feel, see if you're doing them right. I'd always say go and find someone, but you could start there. And most people, it takes six weeks of physio to get to a situation where they're much more dry. So those sorts of things, fine. And with prolapses also, there's a lot to be said for looking at, you know, online, finding out what it looks like, what it is, and then starting to make decisions. Because again, there's doesn't have to mean surgery. It doesn't have to mean no more kids. Loads of people have um, pessaries or other sorts of devices, which are, you know, they look a bit alarming, but they're there. And there's so many things out there that could help. It could help in a way that might make you feel so confident that you can then um, address the other things. And like, heaven knows if, you, if you've got it and you end up feeling miserable and depressed, like definitely get yourself some help for that because it is so easy as a woman in this sort of situation to sort of beat yourself up and stuff. And it's like, there's help out there if you're feeling a bit miserable, if it's feeling a bit overwhelming, if you're a bit upset. And again, that doesn't mean being locked up or taking antidepressants necessarily if you don't want to, but there is, it is there. And there's more of it than you might imagine. Something very exciting is yes. happening now. It's, it's so exciting and so sort of strange. It's quite a sort of surreal world. But yes, yeah, I have written a book about incontinence, partly, you know, for other women like me or like I was who maybe don't realise that there's a load going on. And because I don't think mine is necessarily a remarkable story. And I think that there must be other women who didn't have the exact same experience as me, but had some of the same feelings and some of the same loneliness. And I wanted to make sure that they, they had a chance of finding out. And also, I wanted to explore some of the things we talked about today, about taboo, about why people joke about it, about uh, whether there's something in my makeup or in everyone's makeup, in what I learned at school, and that affects the way we're all reacting now to all of this. And And I really hope that the book does make people laugh as well but also you know give people a way in to thinking about it and talking about it they might not talk about it as I did but at leaving knowing it's there might help some people so I'm really excited but it's not out until June it's coming out in World Continence Week um, which it, it's, it's a very strange world I found myself in but I'm if it if we can help people then I think it's like not in a pious way but if if there's so I found out I was incontinent that thing I told you right at the beginning about the doctor and sitting there and I walked out and um I was like standing on the hill with my baby in a pram and like looking at the sky and it was like late summer and my lanes were damp and I was like what has happened to me and how am I ever ever gonna feel normal again and I I just didn't believe that was possible. And like, maybe it's just time. I don't know what it was. Look, I'm crying now. I don't know what it was, but I do feel better. I did feel better. I do feel more like me. I feel like I'm more than a prolapse or a scar or a disgusting condition or swearing or being upset or getting drunk about it or any of those things. And I think that that is there for loads of people, hopefully, probably much quicker than me making less of a mess of it. But I think it is there. And I... I'm not normally a hopeless person. I'm normally enthusiastic and tiggerish. And I don't think I would have believed you if you had said it to me. But maybe if you'd said, and look, here are some stories from other people, then maybe I would have felt that it would be all right. I think it's going to make all the difference to so many people. It is totally exciting. Yes. Congratulations. We need to set what the title of it is, though. Go for it. It's called PMSL. So it's how I literally piss myself laughing and 
survive the last taboo to tell the tale, which is quite long, but we wanted to make sure that um, everyone knew what was going on in the book. Um, and it's also got a really lovely cover, cover. And don't worry, it's not like an embarrassing cover to carry around. It's really. Are you going to show me in a minute? Yeah, I am. I am. Right. It's amazing. Right, well, let's clock off and, I can, and I'll have a look. Thank you. I feel like the fact that we're now in a place where an incontinent story is being published at all is something to really celebrate. Loose Brett's book, PMSL, is released in a couple of weeks. It's available to pre-order now. I will put the link in the show notes. And can I just say how much I loved the idea that stigma can't bear it if you name it? In the next episode, I'll be meeting the pelvic health physio Emma Brockwell on Instagram. She is at PhysioMumUK. She's up to all sorts, but most recently she co-wrote the first set of guidelines on postnatal running. Now for me, getting back to fitness, figuring out how to break a sweat without losing my insides has been a big part of all of this. So listen out for that. Please don't take anything you hear in this podcast as medical advice. Do seek out your own professional help but please do get involved. Subscribe, tell me what you think and spread the word. Tell a friend, leave a review, spam a WhatsApp group. Let's end the stigma. You've been listening to Why Mums Don't Jump with me, Helen Ledwick. You can find me on Instagram at Why Mums Don't Jump or online at whymumsdontjump.com. Bye for now.